Hi everybody! Welcome to Nature Match Cuts, the podcast exploring marvels of biodiversity and fascinating cultural heritage. Listen to inspiring stories from the intersections of science and nature writing, cultural knowledge and art. Welcome, friends of the biosphere, to our first spring episode of Nature Match Cuts, a podcast reconnecting you with nature. I am Petra van Kronenburg, broadcasting directly from the nature park Vosch du Nord in Alsace in eastern France. Hard to believe after all the winter grey I was scripting this episode with a view on the first flowering Fusitia in the gardens. Next to me, the scent of the blossom snow from branches of the cherry plum, Prunus carasifera. The scent of honey with a slight almond aroma wafts around the forest edges at this time of the year. Our title, When Gardeners Run Wild. Do we speak about cultural gardens versus forest wilderness? Not even our nature park is a true wilderness, but the result of cultural sequences. The Celts seem to have already used the cherry plum and the Romans spread the tree further to the north. What today belongs to our distinctive wild and native shrubs at the edge of the forest once ran wild. How do we actually distinguish between wilderness and nature cultivated by humans? Or is it the wrong question? At school, we learned something about the Neolithic Revolution. That sounds like a very sudden event, as if agriculture exploded into the jungle thicket. But surely there must have been beginnings. People who gathered their favorite berries spat out stones. When they returned to their old paths years later, at some point they were perhaps happy that their favorite berries were now also growing in their former resting places. Edible grasses may have spread along their migration routes as other plants were trampled flat and the ground was open for new seedlings. But are we humans as unique in this respect as we imagine? I found these cultural changes on very surprising hiking routes. So today I want to tell you about gardeners and farmers from whom many Homo sapiens could learn something about nature-oriented gardening and even rewilding. Join me 
on my new episode When Gardeners Run Wild and be surprised by our furred and feathered colleagues, the farmers in Kiton and the forgetful gatherers dealing with seeds and plants, whole forests and landscaping. Let's follow Bilbo's nose, who has a perfect sense for our first gardeners. We walk to a large meadow bordering fields and a forest. It belongs to a farmer and is one of the few that shine in the golden yellow of wild cowslips and spring. They have become rare in the northern Vosges and are under protection. In this meadow, the cowslips were almost exterminated. You will be surprised how they come back. Bilbo discovers the secret gardeners at once for they lay out racetracks on which he can very comfortably drive along with his wet nose. For him, these tracks are at first an adventure in sand concentrations. He knows exactly who runs here, when and in which direction. Where this unknown creature stopped to feed long ago, He can no longer smell, but I recognize it. A different grass grows there. The grass seems to be regularly captured as if by a mini lawnmower. The farmer detested the tiny lawnmowers. But in reality, initially, the problem was the farmer himself, who borrowed ever larger machines. He has to, because he earns less and less, so he has to finish faster. That's what consumers want. And so over time he compacted the ground worse and worse with his tractor, made hay more and more often, and damaged the meadow even more. Some wildflowers stayed away, and cowslips only bloomed very sporadically here and there. And in the last years of drought, when the grass burned at the root, the soil did not fare well at all. Suddenly, the wolves came, armies of Microtus avalis. In good mice years, a population of 100 individuals per hectare can jump up to 2,000. That's one vole per inhabitant of our village. I found out that common voles prefer to settle on such damaged soils, but I don't know exactly why. 
whether it was the soil compaction, the lower grass, or the late winter manure drive up by the farmer. I don't know. Today, I can only walk on these meadows if I pay close attention to the ground. It's too easy to sprain your foot in the holes and in dry summers, entire corridors collapse. A snoop's paradise for Bilbo. Common voles can be recognized by the fact that they eat everything in front of their entry hole. They hold plants extremely short. They eat mainly grass, but also like different herbs, seeds and crops. And they also graze on all vegetation on their above-ground runways. It looks like road construction through the entire home range. Voles are seldom seen outside these runways, which enables faster and safer locomotion and easier orientation. But not every mower is a gardener. They transform their meadow because they are picky. You can see that certain tufts of grass or meadow flowers remain in such areas. As I've watched this meadow over the years, the voles have transformed it. Certain seed-rich flowering plants reproduce more vigorously. That's how I came up with a rather funny term for gardening mice. They behave like the pre-Neolithic hunters and gatherers who spat out fruit stones. The voles don't feed on these plants, but on their seeds. Forgotten seeds grow into a new plant, making seed gathering even easier for the vole. At the same time, a new type of grass has spread around the nests and in the runways that didn't exist before. It's very dense and extremely fine. They don't touch it. It's like the mice aren't just growing certain flowers, but these little patches of grass as well, between their runways, All sort of wild clover species, sorrel and smooth oats have recently been growing. Someone else must have introduced the smooth oats. Before, they used to grow only at the edge of the forest. This type of grass is rich in vitamins and minerals and it's sweet. Bilbo uses it for digestion, and wild boars love it too. And they have been coming to these meadows for a number of years because they also like to eat something else, clava, sorrel and voles. It's a treat. They ambush them in their runways or churn up the mouse castle centers where the voles sleep and hide their supplies. In addition to the cute so-called mouse garden, 
with the dense small grass, the wild boars build sow pits where the water stands. New herbs and wet meadow flowers settle in the damp fallow land. The wild boars carry new seeds with them in their fuel and faces, such as smooth oats. They guard them, if you will, in their own way. All these animals influence the ecosystem of the meadow. The Volsboros generate benefits for the soil, growing its fertility by increasing subway organic matter. They increase soil aeration and facilitate water filtration. The soil becomes more like a sponge. In times of drought, such soil is more resistant and stays longer humid. Well, The new boar and vole gardeners were happy. But of course the farmer didn't like that excitement at all. Fortunately, he doesn't have the time and money and doesn't mess around as much as his colleagues to fight these animals. Eventually, he noticed that both species worked to aerate his meadow, which was densified by the heavy machines. Now, it is enough to superficially scarify the soil just once in spring. Above all, he saw that the wild boar and birds of prey keep the mouse population in check. The common vole has also a kind of self-regulation of its population. Not only influenced by the population level itself, but The reproduction rate can also change with the amount and quality of food and light. Buzzards, kestrels, ravens and owls are some of the birds that feed on the common vole and so delimit population sizes. Ground predators are mainly weasel, stoat, adder, polecat, fox and boar. It was good not to invest in toxic pest control, for it would have killed some of the vole's enemies too. Letting nature take its course sometimes takes a little longer, but naturally grown ecosystems are more sustainable and robust, more resilient. Now, some new plants spread even more easily. Plants that the farmer can feed to the sheep. And what about the cowslips? They prefer the free mouse roads and the damp wild boar burrows more than the ground before. They don't mind scarifying. On the contrary, it divides entire cushions into individual plants, which in turn form new cushions. And so somehow the mice are to blame for the fact that the rare cowslips came back again. They had left the meadow that has been worked too much. They returned because the farmer did nothing. The voles have achieved even more. The grass they promote is extremely drought-resistant. 
It was the only one that was green in summer during the last few years of drought, thus protecting the soil. This newcomer grass keeps moisture in the soil and protects soil life and humus. And the end of the story? This farmer can make hay twice a year while his colleagues look at burnt soil. On their meadows, without mice, everything has dried up. Really, everything. These mice feed my soul. They teach me that nothing is nonsensical in an ecosystem. They show me how fascinating nature can organize itself if you just leave it alone and don't immediately declare everything you don't like to be a pest. Of course, the wild boar will be shot if they get the upper hand, but only then because they ensure that there are not too many mice. All elements together promote the variety of flowers in the meadow and in turn butterflies, wild bees and insects. But is it really gardening or farming what they do? Or mere happenstance? Wikipedia sets apart farming and gardening. They define the plant side of farming is growing useful plants and gardening by the practice of growing and cultivating plants as part of horticulture. But when you read on, you realize that this seemingly simple categorization is a late construct. In its origins, there are many overlaps with the so-called wild nature, and even with animals. They admit, quote, while agriculture usually refers to human activities, certain species of animals have been cultivating crops for up to 60 million years. And what about primitive gardening? They say forest gardens originated in prehistoric times along jungle-clad riverbanks and the wet foothills of monsoon regions. In the gradual process of families improving their immediate environment, useful tree and vine species were identified, protected and improved while undesirable species were eliminated. Now, look at our voles. Do they cultivate their favorite grass or is it imported only by chance? When they keep certain plants continuously short for the benefit of new wild herbs, is it nothing else than an automatism? Between the entries of their burrows and only there, I find Achuga reptans, the blue bugle. This plant grew never before in that meadow. It came with the mice. Bugle is a fantastic ground cover against too much sun and one of the first nectar plants for a bunch of different pollinators. It was an important healing herb and is edible by humans. 
do the voles eat it? Or can we find any symbiosis? The voles fertilize these plants by digging out their excrement. The bagel provides shade and stabilizes the burrow entrances. Has this ever been investigated? We know so little. Ecosystems are such diverse worlds that we are far away from having understood everything if we look at them only in an anthropocentric way. And evolution has connected so many species of animals and plants until dependence and symbiosis. Many plants couldn't survive without animals. We should never forget that evolution rewards cooperation. Cooperation within and between species, before any primordial and unintended farming or gardening, we have natural seed dispersal. Plants have evolved an astonishing array of strategies for dispersing the seed. There are complicated words for each kind, but let's make it simple. Some plants spread their seeds alone, and the others enter into cooperation because they advance by doing so. Self-dispersal, for example, works with gravity. The seeds fall to the soil, or with ballistic ejections and explosions. Hoorah! Crepitans, the dynamite tree, is well known for its ballistic seed dispersal. You can hear the fruits explode, throwing their seeds up to a maximum of 100 meters. Witch hazel doesn't explode, but it squeezes out its seeds at 45 kilometers per hour. That's 28 miles per hour. In my childhood, I liked to touch ripe seed capsules of touch-me-not, impatience paviflora. In a part of a second, these bean-like forms curled around my finger and opened at such a speed that the tiny seeds jumped around me. You guessed it, plants still don't get very far that way. Therefore, plants use also natural forces, like the wind or water. Dandelion and clematis disperse with the wind. Coconuts can swim long distances by ocean currents before washing up on distant shores. And water lily seeds flow on tiny air pockets to new areas. And then we have the hikers in the plant kingdom, searching long distances and speed. These plants cooperate with animals, including Homo sapiens. Here we should find the beginnings of natural togetherness. Seed transportation can happen outside or inside an animal. When I've marched the dog through the thicket, I find all these little passengers in his fur and on my woolen jacket just waiting for me to brush them off outside and not over the bin. 
The rest is accomplished by rain, wind and the luck of hitting naked soil. So-called invasive plants were once upon a time spread by expeditions or soldiers on transport to a distant war. Today, modern means of transport take on this role with seeds and the cargo of ships or aircraft. We should not underestimate shoes as means of transport. After lumberjacks helped me trim my hedge, a forest edge flora is developing in the front garden. I can see from the new wild herbs in which vegetation area they have been working in parallel. Apart from their work, they did not garden on purpose, but they were ecosystem engineers like our voles. More natural seed dispersal by animals includes the forgetful collectors, like squirrels, chipmunks or jays. The seeds in their cages are well protected from other seed predators and if left uneaten, will grow into new plants. If humans do not intervene, many a Jay family has already planted a small thicket. Transportation inside animals means even more variety for the plants. It begins with spitting out the seeds of fruit by our ancestors, as well as by chimps or elephants. And the even more sophisticated way goes through the digestion system. Especially hard-covered seeds are thus prepared for germination. Digestive juices soften the hard seed coats, but do not destroy the inside. In the last few years, More research is done about the influence of external microbiota on plant seeds. The newest research speaks of plants and their microbiota as holobionts. Scientists focus on understanding how seed microbe associations may ultimately impact plant health and productivity in both agricultural and natural ecosystems. Animals provide the seeds two times with microbes. The second living coat arrives when the seeds drop into the soil with the excrement. What a fortunate interplay! The seeds are coated directly with their fertilizer. Unfortunately, these animal-plant microbiotas are still rather a white spot on the map of research. As an example, scientists know that seeds of chili pepper that passed through the gut of a bird and were deposited in feces had a 370% increase in survival over seeds that did not pass through the bird's gut. Only the interplay of microbes and the potential benefit of the gutway is rather unknown. There will be a lot of research to be done because it could mean that species loss in seed eaters could have a direct impact 
on plant health and diversity in the future. It could even show why compost has a different effect on plant growth and soil health at the bacterial level than artificial fertilizer applications. Now, let's look at another burrowing rodent. The southeastern pocket gophers dig tunnels in the southeastern parts of the USA and Central American grasslands. Gophers feed mainly on roots and rhizomes in the underground where they dig shallow tunnels which are connected to a deeper tunnel system by a spiral staircase. Their nest chamber is padded by dried vegetation and plant fibers. So their life reminds us much of our small voles. Differently from the European voles, a controversial study from the University of Florida in 2022 suggests them as the first mammal and non-human farmers. The researchers discovered that digging costs far too much energy to be made up by the roots gophers eat while excavating. They had to eat from their root gardens in older tunnels, where roots grow like stalactites. They provide conditions to favor root growth, and they do it actively by spreading their excrement in the tunnels. It's the best fertilizer. And here we have the difference between other gophers and rodents. These have designated waste areas, and they don't spread it. What else could be named farming? Is it their way of keeping these root tunnels deep enough for being humid? Or is it the nibbling on tender rhizomes rather than cutting strong roots? with their teeth? It seems to stimulate the plants to grow more roots, but perhaps the pocket gophers just prefer tenderfoot? Indeed, they aerate the soil and increase nutrient fertilization. The study could not show how intentional or planned gophers stimulate root growth. But even if they can hardly agree on a designation, because farming is not subject to a fixed definition, pocket gophers are indisputably one above all. They are invaluable ecosystem engineers. By soil tilling, they mix up layers of soil, aerate the soil, and they cycle nutrients with a positive effect on the biodiversity of the grasslands. The University of Florida found an even more beneficial influence on subway biodiversity. Their tunnels serve as an important shelter for a variety of animal species, like insects, salamanders, frogs, lizards, snakes and small mammals. The Department of Wildlife, Ecology and Conservation writes, Some species of beetles and camel crickets are very rare and exist only in burrows made by gophers. 
these insects have evolved with gophers and are entirely dependent on them for their survival. The Florida pine snake is a large, impressive snake that shares habitat with the southeastern pocket gopher. We humans can continue to argue about their role as a rudimentary kind of farmers, but at least their function as ecosystem engineers makes them important players in the ecology and conservation of American grasslands. They help maintain prairies. They are even heroes, as Emory University paleontologist and geologist Anthony J. Martin called them heroes. He described their role as survivors of the volcanic eruption of Mount St. Helen in 1980. Gophers gave shelter to other animals and worked with the soil. These rodents distributed seeds and seedlings from their deep storage areas to the loose soil of the mounds. For Martin, the gophers were one of the keys to the natural restoration of the landscape after the catastrophe. Ecosystem engineers. Perhaps this is the profession we could concede to the wolves too. When they give resilience to meadows in a time of warming and more droughts. They brought back our cowslips and changed the biodiversity of a meadow that was nearly destroyed by too many mowings and soil strongly compacted by too heavy machines. Perhaps we first need to move away from seeing our human labels as immutable which are intended for people in an economic system. These animals don't own their land like modern farmers do. They don't discuss the kinds of crops according to sales schemes of supply and demand or even profit. Most of them are even persecuted as pests by humans. But we may not forget one thing. Our modern definition of farming or gardening are also not applicable to our ancestors. Remember the prehistoric forest gardens. It was not an explosion leading to the so-called Neolithic revolution, but a gradual development. Therefore, we want to free ourselves from superficial labels. Let's just watch more fascinating animals who are at least important influencers of their ecosystems and perhaps much more. But before I talk about the fascinating farmers of the jungle and even the sea, I must switch to the eagerly awaited interview with Mrs. Mermi Cockery. I'm happy that she found a few minutes for us, even though her working day is completely packed. It's a good thing we are not making a film, because it takes a bit an effort to talk to each other. 
I wear a nasal filter that gives me access to certain pheromones and we communicate with each other beside this through the finest sounds and touches. Welcome to Mrs. Mermy Cockery. Thank you very much for being able to free yourself from your responsible tasks to come to our Nature Match Cut studio, Mrs. Cockery. Do I spell your name correctly? Yes, of course. You know, my queen mother had a fable for ancient Greek, like Myrmex, for ancient Greek, like Myrmex, Horea. You can call me just Myrmex. All my sisters listen to this first name. When I remember correctly, in Greek mythology, Myrmex was a young maiden who became a favorite of the goddess Athena. Athena loved her for her intelligence. Meanwhile, Demeter invented crops and wanted to teach the humans how to sow and work with a plough, together with Myrmex. The myth says that Myrmex stole some sheaves and claimed that she herself had invented the plough. Myrmex wanted that the humans should prefer her way of farming. Then the myth became strange. Athena, who loved Myrmex so much, is said to be heartbroken by the girl's betrayal. So she turned her into an aunt, doomed to only be able to steal crops. Zeus, who normally had a problem with tough women, felt pity for Myrmex, so he honored the ant. He even created a race, a new race of people, the Myrmidons, out of transformed ants. It sounds completely odd to my ears. What do you say, Myrmex? Indeed it is. You have a good example of how ancient myths were colonized by later coming people. Often they become completely twisted in the service of later ideology. Fortunately, we can easily determine the different layers. The goddesses would never ever condemn ants or talk as bad about that intelligent girl. Demeter worked with her and she exactly knew about Myrmex's knowledge and intelligence. I'm sure that the first humans learned from ants. Probably Athena was only jealous of Demeter. She did love Myrmex. And the old philanderer Zeus simply seized the opportunity to turn the goddesses against each other. It was mostly about his own power. But even here he had to admit that this ant knowledge must never be lost. So he created the ant people to repopulate the island Aegina. The myth of Aegina tells another typical Greek god's jealousy story. 
the island was lost because Hera, in her jealousy against Zeus, had killed all residents with a virus or a dangerous bacterial infection. But the ants were immune to it. And so were the ant people, the inventors of farming. Unfortunately, the myth doesn't tell us how the ants fought against that disease. They had the means to do it. This is so fascinating and sounds logical. In school we learned only that the Myrmidons would have been as fierce and hardy as ants. And loyal to their queen. Patriarchal writers changed her into a male leader, but aunts and aunt people have only queens. And there's your last name, Corkery, from ancient Greek, Horea. What does it mean? Korea, dance, is what we do. Some people think that we are dancers. When I see how elegant and delicate you are sitting in front of me, I would be quite tempted to bet dancer. What is your profession? Remind the beautiful and intelligent Myrmex. I would describe myself as a specialist gardener, because my tasks in our large nursery are very specific. We've been doing this for 50 million years, by the way, just to compare with your Neolithic revolution. I totally indulge you with that proud grin. My jaw dropped in amazement when I read about the ancient tradition your tribe relies on. Well, ancient is a massive understatement. We call this time the Paleogene. Just for our listeners to imagine better which time we speak, it was quite humid and hot on Earth, and the continents continued to drift closer to their current positions. Tropical species and mammals diversified, and your colonies spread over the whole planet. Farming. Can you tell us what crops you cultivate? Of course, contrary to what the patriarchal legend writers from ancient Greece claimed, we do not steal sheaves. We don't even like hard grains. Our colonies are highly specialized fungi growers. They are ideal for dinner, but also provide delicious deserts. Are we really talking about a million-year-old tradition? That sounds more like a modern startup of the 21st century. When you consider how sophisticated our methods are to get our cultures through any climate and any outside threat, it has taken quite a long time to develop. In the past, we may not have had the sophisticated division of labor 
that we have today. So what is your job exactly? You told me before that it's different to your childhood dream. As children, we have sometimes crazy dreams. I always admired the insalivators. They seemed happy, as if it wasn't just a comfortable job, but also one where we could snack. But I noticed quickly that I became too tall for my dream profession. Can you explain this, please? Yes, insalivators are very small. Depending on the job, we have different bodies. You call it a cased but it has nothing to do with it. You should name it skills, bodily skills. Since we live highly social lives, we have no problem like you in fulfilling our tasks for the community. So only the tiniest of us become insalivators. Later, I learned that they don't snack. They prepare our fertilizer for the fungi. I think um, you should explain to our listeners the whole chain of production. Here in France, we had underground cultures of the Agaricus bisporus mushrooms, the so-called champignons de Paris. They grew these mushrooms in the old bunkers of the Machinot line, because their temperature and humidity were ideal. Today we have startups using similar places. These modern mushroom farmers have to learn a lot about humidity levels and, as I know, they have to work absolutely hygienically. They have to disinfect themselves and they work almost like in a laboratory. That always seemed strange to me. Gardeners don't usually have to pay such an attention to these things. You seem to have much more experience than these people. Yes, let me explain our fungi farming. First of all, in our region they understood well that underground work is magnificent for mushrooms. That's why we grow our crops deep underground in tunnel systems. So deep that the temperature and humidity are not only ideal, but also remain quite constant. This has the added advantage that the fungi can be defended in the event of an attack. Self-sufficiency is always assured, even in the event of a war. You have to imagine that one of our colonies has about 8 million inhabitants. Moreover, our queen lives in the garden enclosures. So nobody can get her from the outside and we can supply her with everything important. We are thankful because new queens bring the seed to their people. Wait... Eight million inhabitants. That's about the size of London, New York or Dakar and only a little bit smaller than Cairo, Bangkok, Seoul 
um, Mexico City. Berlin doesn't reach half of it. And in New York, you use about 300 square miles or 780 square kilometers for these people. London is not quite as densely populated. They have more than double the place for the urban part. Your species has enormous land use. Is your species better? Of course, with our method of building underground on many different levels, we save a lot of space. Our 8 million live on 650 square meters. That's 6,500 square feet. Unbelievable! We need that for one single building place. But, well, how can I formulate it? You can say that we are bodily adapted. Now, I'm excited about your underground life and farm work. I'm with a special unit for fertilizer harvesting and removal and therefore work mostly above ground. That is the reason why I was able to come to the studio. At this point, I would like to thank you for giving me so many leaves as a fee. That goes without saying. Well, back to our work. Our farms are served in assembly line work. And we need specialists for about 30 different work processes. I tell you about the most important ones. Our special unit cuts leaves and brings these pieces as fertilizer to our colony. We have no microbiome to digest cellulose and plant fibers, so we don't eat these leaves. Sometimes we only drink sap from them, but our fungi can digest them because they produce cellulase. I understand cellulase is a group of enzymes that start the decomposition of cellulose into sugars. So your fungi decomposite these leaves and produce sugars? Don't be so quick. We still aren't at the underground farm. Our unit put the leaf parts in front of the entrance and others continue to cut them underground. That's when our tiny ones come into their own, the insulivators. These tiny sisters have to treat the biomass in a very hygienic way. They spit on the leaf pieces clean them up and have a special disinfectant in their saliva. Then they roll all of it into balls of substrate and build the gardens. They are so skilled that they even create tunnels in the substrate for maintenance. And what kind of fungi do you grow? It depends on our colonies which fungi they prefer. As I say, it is the young queen who brings her favorite fungi. 
we, for example, breed Leuco agaricus fungi. Oh, I know these mushrooms. They look a lot like our champignon de Paris. But attention, we don't let them build their fruiting corpse, what you call the mushrooms. We prefer the swellings of their mycelium, which is the underground part of the fungus. Perhaps you have seen a mycelium by turning up dead wood. It looks like a white net built from the so-called hyphens. The hyphens are the tiny arms of the net. The whole net is called mycelium. How do you prevent the growth of fruit bodies? We regularly bite off the ends of the mushroom hyphens. Instead, proteinaceous, bulbous thickenings develop. These are delicacy and they provide us with different sugars. Your knowledge is fascinating. Thank you. We had time to adapt to these challenges. Well, back to the work. We now have the biomass and the chosen fungi hyphen. Some of our sisters are planters. They plant the hyphen parts onto the substrate. Think of it like a spongy surface of a slice of bread on which molds grow. Other workers spread their own faces as an additive nutrient, or they pull weeds. Do you have weeds in your underground farms? Yes, all species of fungi love the conditions in our farm, but we don't love every fungus. So we weed the unwanted to breed only our favorite one. We also need waste collectors. The dead fungi parts have to be disposed of. Exhausted substrate replaced and everything that comes up on a farm. The waste collectors transport it to special rooms where we also place our dead relatives. Sometimes these rooms are placed outside of the colony. Our waste managers, mostly older and experienced ex-collectors like me, keep the rubbish constantly moving and mixing, just like you do with compost heaps. This ensures faster decomposition. So you have waste management that can even prevent diseases? There's always the danger of parasites too. Tell me more about these dangers. Like your farmers, we sometimes need pest control. We have to fight molds and parasitic fungi. It's complicated, but we exactly know which kind of leaves each species of fungus needs and how to kill parasites. Mostly, we use portable antimicrobials. Unbelievable! How do you make this? The farm workers carry bacteria which produce certain chemicals. These bacteria mostly have complicated names. There are, for example, Pseudonocardia. 
And you surely know these gram-positive bacteria called actinomycetota, or shortly, actinobacteria. Oh yes, actinobacteria are important soil bacteria. And one of them, the bifidobacterium, is indispensable for our microbiome. We put it even in yogurt. I had produced a whole podcast episode about that under the title Sitting with your beloved sourdough. These bacteria are a boon to humankind. Most of our antibiotics are based on them, for example, on Streptomyces bacteria. May I ask, since when humans work with antibiotics? Some ancient cultures like the Egyptians and Greek worked with molds and plants already. In modern medicine, it began with Paul Ehrlich in the late 1880s. <laughs> Sounds a little bit like your Neolithic revolution. Sorry, I didn't want to offend humans. Indeed, it took us millions of years of selection. One paper by human scientists says they already found us with actinobacteria in oligomycin amber. Our plant medicine with antibiotics is only 15 million years old. It is what the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute said in 2016. The Smithsonian study had reconstructed the 15 million years and found out, wait, I cite from the study, when they provide mulches rich in carbohydrates, the fungus can produce both hyphae and mushrooms, but carefully provisioned doses of protein can prevent the fungi from making mushrooms. Isn't it wonderfully easy to play the mushroom tamer? We don't even think about it at work. Easy? It isn't that simple. Most people have no idea how sophisticated your work is. They would even refuse to call you farmers. There would be a way out for your civilization. A collective brain. <laughs> we try our best. But let's get back to our use of... Bact no, excuse me. But let's get back to your use of bacteria. It's all a matter of the body. We carry the antibiotics around in different parts of our body. For example, on the chest. We can also produce them ourselves. We have a special gland at our mouth for that. Then we apply them to the mushrooms or substrate with our feet. It looks similar to humans who trample on grapes with their naked feet to make wine. By the way, I've noticed that you are irritated by the fact that I keep wiping my hands over my mouth. This is because I don't want to get infected here. So I spread my medicine 
on my body. Yes, I noticed that very much. I'm embarrassed to stare like that, but you are so mesmerizing. I've never seen anyone like you close up before. No problem. It's also completely new to me to see creatures that need a wooden frame to keep their backbones in a sitting shape and that tend to secrete unhealthy bacteria from their noses and mouths. I'm afraid your slime wouldn't grow tasty mushrooms. Perhaps some mold. I really hope that evolution still has some development possibilities for Homo sapiens. I tell you something even more mesmerizing. Some of us can produce in these special glands phenylacetic acid. You know this derivate of acetic acid too. You humans, for example, use it to synthesize penicillin. And you know it from agriculture and gardening, as so-called auxins. These are plant hormones. Ta-da! Never ever say to us that we don't know to farm. You have my respect, but not all people like your settlements. Many farmers want to fight back when you take the green from their plants. Look at the environment, especially in the South American tropics, which I love. Did anyone complain enough when those same farmers were cutting down the rainforest? Some scientists are more progressive. They can see that we like to cut mushroom fertilizer in disturbed ecosystems, but it is not we who have disturbed these regions. So your spread is not a threat? Keep the ecosystems intact. And we are in danger too. There are robbers who specialize in attacking our settlements. They are called megalomermics and I call them megalomaniacs. Brutal guys who spray corrosive liquid in our faces tear us apart and kill our children. That's not all. They plunder everything. Those who manage to escape try to save parts of our fungi cultures. Well, sometimes we steal from neighbors too. That's pretty much in the balance if the ecosystem works. I saw pictures of your sisters hanging like dead on leaves. Is this caused by these robbers? Oh no, I suppose you talk about the death grip. Yes, it's named so. This is another way of nature keeping the balance. Ironically, what's killing us here is a creature we so adore, a fungus, but a killer fungus. You humans call it Cordyceps militaris. Cordyceps means something like a baseball bat, because that's what its fruiting body looks like. You can imagine what a creature with such a martial name can do. 
Wow, that's like in The Last of Us. Or in the video game Bark Fables. Humans sometimes have a strange sense of humor. But tell me, is it this fungus? Yes, it is. And it is a killer. But at the same time, parasites have a positive effect on diversity. If a species becomes too numerous, parasites stop it to get overall. So if we are too many or don't pay attention, the killer fungus infiltrates our body with its spores. First, we can't discover any sign with the exception that these infected sisters leave their colony. Sometimes they are thrown out. If we recognize the danger early enough, they are utterly disoriented and search for more humid places, mostly about 10 inches above the ground. They move like robots. When they found a leaf in the temperature and humidity, which is ideal for the killer, they bite into the leaf. This is called the death grip, because they are unable to open their mouth again. Their body becomes completely stiff. It's almost an irony of fate. You know so well how to create the ideal environment for your fungi breedings and now a killer mushroom is turning that around and against you. Yes, it's a tragedy that gets even worse. These sisters die but keep fixed on the leaf. The killer fungus erupts from their heads into fruit bodies. These mushrooms need only three weeks to grow until the spores burst. I heard that they never found fungal cells in your species' brains. Nevertheless, the killer fungus seems to change the brain. Some scientists suppose mind control by bioactive compounds. If it is bioactive stuff, it interferes effectively with our nervous system and the control of our muscles. It is indeed a terrible danger for us, makes us utterly helpless and can wipe out a whole colony. But even this parasitic fungi has always accompanied us. You found a 48 million year old fossil of such a death grip in Messel in Germany. That's just nature. It ensures that one species doesn't take over. You can still be happy that you are not yet at the mercy of a killer fungus. But if you don't learn, you will find other ways to obliterate your species. It's difficult for me to come to an end of the interview here at this point. I can comfort you. Forget that everything has to have a Hollywood happy ending. A real happy ending is when an ecosystem remains intact, as undisturbed as possible by humans. 
And to this ecosystem belongs the killer fungus just as much as our antibiotics. And even your species is a part of nature. So learn from it. It's all about balance, about togetherness. Nature for us is not only evolution, but also continuous learning and community as a driver of evolution. That's a perfect conclusion. Mermex, thank you very much for interrupting your important work for our interview. I wish you further successful farming. Friends of the biosphere, I'm quite speechless about all this information. We don't have pictures, but you've probably noticed who I did this interview with a leaf cutter and told us about their methods of growing fungi. And of course, that's a whole different level than what voles and gophers work. Before the interview, I actually promised you to tell more about the animal gardeners in the jungle and in the sea. But during the interview with a smart Myrmex, our leafcutter aunt, the news just broke in that I found another interviewee. I didn't dare to count on that. My suggestion. We'll add a second episode to this interesting topic. It would be a shame to dilute the impact of what Myrmex had to tell us. So you can stay curious. The animal gardeners and farmers will continue on the last day of May. If you can't wait until then, check out my blog or follow me on Mastodon. You find all important information on nature match cuts in one word, point net. Now, I want to remind Mermek's words. Our species is a part of nature too. She said, so learn from it. It's all about balance, about togetherness. Nature for us is not only evolution, but also continuous learning and community as a driver of evolution. So stay curious and symbiotic. See you later with the next episode.